Amen. If you will, take your Bibles. John chapter 4, we're going to look at the third piece in this next step and next component and part of Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. So John 4, our text today will be verses 15 through 25. We have seen already running through John chapter 4, the beauty of God's grace running through this in his encounter, in his conversation uh, with this woman, and it will just be, uh, continue to be enhanced um, today. Um, We are all acquainted with the story of the Good Samaritan and, and that story that Jesus told, but we have been looking at another Samaritan who from her own people looked at her as someone who was an outcast and someone who did not have value. She was someone who was bad. She was a bad, sinful Samaritan. But we will see, because of the beauty and the power and the incredible love of Jesus, we will see the grace of God continue to unfold in her life. We're going to have this morning a very good theological, doctrinal discussion of, on some really important matters and and of particular, the matter of worship. What, is it, what does it mean to worship God biblically, in spirit, and in truth? And so as this conversation continues with the Son of God and a woman who many would label as damaged goods and someone who would not be interested in God at all, um, to worship Him, to have a discussion about Him, this assumption of her is completely wrong. She is actually interested in biblical concepts. She is interested in talking about spiritual matters. She has thoughts on that. She has questions on that. And we will deal with those today. You see, she is someone who is not too far gone. And the reason is, is because she is in the presence of the only one who could alter her life and change everything for her because nothing is too far gone when Christ is around and that means you and I today there's not anything that any of us have done that cannot be forgiven and we cannot be restored back into a relationship with him and so we're going to talk today on the subject matter of worship and so everyone let me just say this everyone worships there is not a person on the planet who does not Worship. There's not a person in history, there will not be a person in the future here on earth who will not worship. We live it, we breathe it, we set our affection on an object of worship every day. Even those who claim to not believe in God, they set their affection on a philosophy or a mindset. Every human being is a worshiper. It just depends on what they are worshiping. Everyone bows somewhere in worship. So for us as Christ followers, we bow and we fall before the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So I've entitled the message today, The Heart of the Matter, because in this conversation with her, Jesus is going to get to the very heart of the matter. He's shared with her last week, calling her to satisfaction and coming to living water and once you come to know the living water then we come to know what it means to have a a worship that is alive and we experience living 
worship. So let's read the text together this morning. John chapter 4, and we're going to look at 15. We looked at 15 last week, but we need to just connect all of this together. So John 4, 15 through 25. So the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And so Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This does something in the woman's understanding about Jesus. And so she says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she turns the conversation to something she's wondered about. Our fathers, in verse 20, worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And so Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Listen to what Jesus says in 22. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Then Jesus says in 24, You see, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, and I believe John adds this here, He who is called Christ, and when He comes, Messiah, He's going to tell us all things. And Jesus very powerfully in 26 said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. Well, let's walk through this text this morning. Incredible, powerful things about what it looks like to be in relationship with Jesus and how do we worship him. And so each point is going to have the phrase, the heart of the matter, and we will look at um, something with each of that. And so the first thing I want us to see this morning is the heart of the matter is that we must all come to a place of acknowledging our need for living water. Now Jesus has already told her, if you knew who was offering you this gift, if you knew about this living water, you would have asked Him and He would have given you this living water. And so, so now, she says in 15, the woman said to Him, Sir, she's asking, give me this water, because she knows she's thirsty. And so she says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She is expressing an interest in what Jesus has been talking about and what Jesus has been offering to her, but she still is not completely clear on exactly everything that He has given given to her and, and been sharing with her. She just still doesn't fully understand it. And it's possible that she is sensing that He is talking something more than just the well. They have been pointing to the well and talking about coming back here. And there's, there's a sense that she, she senses Jesus is saying something more than just the well. 
Nicodemus was this way as well as he continued to kind of wrestle with what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. So before we go on, let me just remind you and I this morning of what marked and what was true of this woman's life. She was a failure at relationships with men and marriage. She was obviously looking for love. She likely knew that her Samaritan worship was lacking and it was empty in its offer of those who worshipped at its temple. We know she is an outcast. We know that her life is hard. We know that she is thirsty for real water and she is thirsty for spiritual water. And I remember in my own life when I came to Christ, I didn't fully understand everything that was there. There was a gradual process of, of kind of coming to a place of understanding more and more things. And so, so it's understandable that she's been thinking about these things, but it's not all clear for her yet. And so that's why Jesus is going to make it incredibly clear. She recognizes her deep need for living water, even though it was kind of confusing still in her head. But I'll say this, if we are ever going to come to drink of living water, we must acknowledge, even in the simplest of terms, in the simplest of ways, we must acknowledge our need for the living water. For if we continue on in our self-sufficiency, it will never lead us to drink of the living water of Jesus. So she has an option. Do I continue down the path that has marked my life, which has led to brokenness, or now do I continue to, to understand what this man has been saying to me and come to a place where I understand this living water? Every one of us must come to a place where we acknowledge our need for spiritual living water. And though she's confused, she asked for it because Jesus said, ask for it and it will be given to you. Let's look at the second thing this morning. And we touched on it last week, but it's found in verses 16 through 18. And the heart of the matter is, if we're ever going to be a worshiper, if we're ever going to come to a relationship with Jesus, then we have to deal with our sin. So last week I held up a mirror. Um, so Jesus has had this conversation, and, and he asked her this question. Let's look at it, 16 through 18. So there Things are going along really well, and so Jesus just gets very personal with her, and he says to her, go call your husband and come back here. So he's suggesting her to go away and come back, and so she just honestly says back to him, sir, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus speaks again and says, yeah, you're right, you have no husband. You've had five of them, and the one you now have, he's not even your husband what you have said is true. And so Jesus holds up the mirror. And he wants her to take a look. Because if she's going to taste of the living water, if she is going to come to a place of, of salvation and being free from her brokenness and the shackle of sin that has just, just enveloped her life, if she's going to find that freedom, then she's got to take a look in the mirror. She's got to see herself in light of the truth, in light of who she is. And as she does that, she will begin to see that he offers something to her that is far greater than she could even ever imagine. 
So Jesus holds up the mirror in our life, and He holds it up, and He calls her to take an examination of her life. She was going to have to deal with her sin nature. This was her bigger issue. It wasn't, her biggest issue wasn't that she was an outcast. Her big, biggest issue was not all of her failed marriages. Her biggest issue was she was separated from the living God, and the only way to come to a relationship with Him was to deal with her sin. If you remember back in John chapter 3, verse 19, it says these words, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And here's the reality, it says, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does what is wicked hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Now watch what Jesus does. Fulfilling what he says in John chapter 3, he shines the light on her, her life. It's a life that's just been grounded in darkness and brokenness and failed relationships and poor choices. And so what she's going to do? Is she going to run away from the light? Is she going to hate the light? Or is she going to deal with what Jesus shines on her heart? And he reveals to her in this moment that he knows all things. As a matter of fact, this is already in John's gospel been a consistent theme. Jesus knows everything about all of us. He knew things of Nathaniel in John chapter 1 before they had even met. In John chapter 2, it says that he knew what was in the hearts of the people in Jerusalem concerning himself. And now here in John chapter 4, he knew all that had happened in that woman's life in her past. And now he knows everything that's right there in the present. And while this moment might seem a little tense, and while somebody may say, why does Jesus go here? This is not a tense moment. I think it's an incredibly tender moment where Jesus is touching her brokenness. And sometimes when we're injured and someone touches where the injury is, at first it, we, we may tense up or, or wince, but, but there's a healing that comes as that wound is ministered to. And so Jesus goes here because he needs to touch her brokenness so that she will see exactly what her brokenness is. He is not being mean here at all with her. He is doing something to bring about spiritual healing. And it may have crossed her mind in this moment, who is this man who knows my past, and he knows it to a T, and he knows my present, and he knows what I am longing for. You see, all of us have heart issues just like the woman. And true life change cannot happen unless we deal with our heart issues. And the heart issues flow from whatever and whomever we have given our heart. So listen to this. So if Jesus has our heart, then our heart is in the best hands possible. But if Jesus does not have our heart, and we've given our heart, and it's gotten lost in circumstances and things of this world, or, or we're just lost in ourselves, and our heart is in the worst place possible. And Jesus is trying to call her out, give your heart to me. Look at your life. Look at the path that you've been on. 
It has not led to a place of satisfaction and life. And so Jesus says, go get your husband. And in the request, he will find out whether or not she's going to love the light or hate the light. And if she is willing to speak the truth in this moment, then she, then she is at least is acknowledging that something is not right inside of me. And she, she will be on the pathway to coming to a place of recognizing what is so broken in her and what she needs is Jesus Himself. And I believe that Jesus is winning her heart here. I believe He is winning her heart at least at the place where she is admitting things aren't right. And she just blurts out the reality straight to Him. Yep, you've got me. You know exactly what is true of me. Now let me say this because I think it's really important. We should not be afraid to step in with honesty with believers and as well as with people who do not even know the Lord. This woman doesn't know the Lord and this, while this honest conversation that Jesus is having with her may make her a little bit uncomfortable, Jesus is not afraid to touch the womb of her heart and lay it open a little bit more so that she will be ready to come to faith. I know in my own life this to be true, and I think you probably do as well. If you know the Lord and you have walked with the Lord, in my life there have been those moments where He has touched the brokenness in my life and touched the wounds of my life, and it has brought change. It has brought everything that I need in my life. Now let me just touch on this, and then we're going to move to point three this morning. And I want to give you a cultural perspective from 2,000 years ago that I think applies to today. Notice this, that Jesus does not see living together as equaling marriage. And while this is very popular in our current culture today, as people say, well, we love each other, it feels right, uh, or we feel as if we are married in God's sight, and some people don't even know um, there's anything wrong with that. Jesus did not see living together as equaling marriage, and he says it straight there. He didn't see that, and so that's a, that, I think just I want to point that out because I think it's really important for us um, to notice Jesus' perspective on that. We have lost in our country today this biblical understanding of the sanctity of marriage, and it needs to return, and we as God's people need to be the ones who are embracing that. Now, the text doesn't tell us why she has had all these past husbands, and it's possible that maybe a couple of them have died. It's possible that the man that she is now living with, um, is, who is not her husband, um, possibly she's not even gotten a divorce from the last man, or maybe possibly it's just simply this. I've been at this for so long. Why even get married? Married because this one probably is going to end up like the other ones. And, and so she is just a living example of what happens with bad choice after bad choice and the reality of life, of the brokenness that is there. And so Jesus has acknowledged. He knows everything about her past. He knows everything about her present. And so now, thirdly, in verse 19, she begins to see Okay, there's something very unique about this guy. And so in verse 19, she says, The woman said to him, Sir, I can see, I've got insight. 
You're not a normal man. You must be a prophet. And the heart of the matter is this, is that Jesus is actually more than a prophet. He's more than that. She doesn't know it yet, but she is seeing that there's something about Jesus. It's dawning on her. This is not an ordinary man. For only a prophet, only a man of God would be able to know about my past without meeting me. Only a man of God would be able to know about, about my present circumstances. And, and while she doesn't acknowledge he's the son of God in this moment, she recognizes there is something incredibly powerful and unique about Jesus. And so she has a question. She's going to ask it here in a moment. If indeed he is a prophet, he can help, help her understand some of the spiritual questions that she's been asking and wondering about in her own life. So did the Samaritans have the right perspective or did the Jews have the right perspective and understanding of worship and following God and walking with God? And so if this man's a prophet, then he's going to hold a key to point her at least in the right direction. And so she is indeed recognizing that this guy can offer this living water or at least he can make it clear as to where I can find it. And she came to this conclusion. Notice this, really important. She came to this conclusion, this guy's got insight that must come from God, not because he was predicting the future. She came to this conclusion that he had inside information that was not possible to have unless God had revealed it to someone. Now, again, she doesn't call him Messiah in this moment, but this will happen and take place. She will recognize exactly who he is. Now, I don't know if she's trying to change the subject or not, because he's pointed out what's not right in her heart in regard to her past and what's going on in her present. But by asking him if he was a prophet, she was at least affirming that he knew her well but we know that he is way more than just a prophet. And this brings us to the fourth heart of the matter. And it's all about worship and, and it's about understanding that worship is not a place. Look with me in 20 and 21. She's got a really big question here that's important to notice. So in John four twenty, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you, speaking of the Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to come and people ought to worship. So this was her question. This is her perspective. This is her understanding. And so Jesus speaks back to her and says to her in 21, Woman, believe me, calling her. Listen, believe what I'm about to tell you. The hour is coming when it's not about this mountain, that mountain, this city, this place, this circumstance. It's not on this mountain. It's not in Jerusalem when you will worship the Father. And so he's, he clearly tells her. Now, church, this gets to the heart of the matter. How do we understand worship? How do we understand when, when we can't meet publicly right now together? How, how does worship work? And Jesus just says, listen, worship is not about a place. It's not about a location. And so she's asking a where question. And in a sense, even a when question. And Jesus says, listen, it's not about a Samaritan perspective. It's not about a Jewish perspective. It's not about Mount Gerizim. It's not about 
in Jerusalem. And so Jesus now is going to share something incredibly insightful about our lives and what worship should look like in our lives, that worship is worship in spirit and truth. And when that happens, this is, this is the reality. Jesus says the Father is seeking those kind of people who aren't about location, but they're about an inside connection with the glory of God and spirit, and they are worshiping about the true things that they know. So before we go any further, let's talk about a definition of worship so that we can understand that. John 4, eight times the word worship, same word for worship, is used. It is a Greek word, and in its purest form, it means this, to kiss toward someone. It was used in the ancient days to describe someone of significance who came in and you would bow and you would take their hand as you bowed toward the ground and you would kiss their hand acknowledging that they are greater than you. This word was also used early on in the original Greek to describe someone who just lays themselves down on the ground, prostrates themselves on the ground before someone who is superior and someone who is greater. So as we think about this biblical understanding of worship, as Jesus uses this word here in in thinking about our relationship with God, it tells you and I that we come to God in incredible humility, leaning in, bowing before Him, yielding our heart, yielding our mind and desiring to give him the glory, every bit of the glory that he alone is due, for he is the greater one. And so the call is, Jesus, she's asking, okay, where do we go to bow? Where do we go to do it? Do we do it here in Mount Gerizim? Because that's where the Samaritan temple is. Or do we go in Jerusalem? Because that's what you guys tell us. And so she says, we, we worship on this mountain. And it was a big deal in those days where you worship. Not far from Sychar, where they are talking, was Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple was. And they felt that that was the right place to worship. And so again, watch this. She brings up this idea of worship. And this was a huge contention between the Samaritans and the Jews, where one worships. And so she asks him, knowing, thinking, he's a prophet of God. He will clarify this for me, hopefully, so that I understand what this look like. looks like. He will settle this question in my heart. And so she says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Probably she points toward Mount Gerizim. And then she says, but you Jews, you, you say that in Jerusalem is where we ought to worship. By the way... The right place to worship in those days, in the sense, was this, was, yes, in Jerusalem. And we come to know that from Deuteronomy chapter 12, where Moses is telling the people, in the days ahead, here's what's going to happen. God's going to tell you where you're going to come to worship Him. And it was a picture of and an idea of that there was going to be a centralized place that the Jewish people would come. So we know under King David, um, David was not allowed to build the temple, but Solomon was going to do that. And the place where the temple was, where the, where the Jews would come to, for the feasts and to worship and the sacrifices was in Jerusalem. And so her 
question about worship comes from a very honest place and a very admirable place, for she is confused, just like many, many people are today in regard to worship and the church in Jesus, where people have an idea of what they think um, worship should be at, at a certain time, in a certain manner, at a certain place, but she's going to learn that worship, based on Jesus' words, is way more than a place, it is way more than a process, but worship is the engagement of our heart, grounded in biblical truth, affirming the glory of Christ. So now Jesus speaks to her in 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Notice what Jesus says to her. I'm asking you to trust me because what I'm about to tell you, believe me, what I'm about to tell you is the truth. This is what you need to believe. And look at what Jesus says. The hour is present when everything about worship, everything that you Samaritans think you know about it, everything for what the Jews understand about worship, it is all going to change. It's not going to be on this mountain. It's not going to be in Jerusalem where you will worship the Father. Jesus basically saying this, let me tell you, this controversy is over. It is about to be over. All of the old way is going to be um, it's going to change because Jesus was going to become the fulfillment of the temple. And He would provide a way for you and I to boldly come and to worship the Father in all of God's majestic glory. See, the true worship of God, according to Jesus, wasn't going to be about confined to a single space anymore because He would open a new door through His flesh to invite you and I to come in. And so the worship of God is not about a space. It's not about a time. It's not the location of our worship that matters. It is He who is the object of our worship. That is what matters. And again, it's not about where you worship, but it's about how one worships. We are to worship in spirit and truth. And so hear this church this morning. If you have confusion of, can we truly worship because we can't come to a building during these days? Absolutely. Your living room can become a sanctuary. Now, biblically, yes, the church needs to meet together. And this is a very unique time. But we all need to get this in our mind. Authentic worship does not look for God in a special place. Rather, those who embrace authentic worship, they find God in every place that they go. They see that everywhere we go is a place to worship Him because Jesus, through His death, has opened a way for us. And this relationship with Jesus is key. So the fourth thing we see, the heart of the matter, is worship is not a place. Look at the, the fifth thing. Look at verse 22. So Jesus says, listen, you worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Fifth point this morning, the heart of the matter, is worship is about knowing the truth of God. So it's not confined to a single place, but the heart of the matter, Jesus says, 
is about knowing the truth. It's about knowing God. So look at 22 again. You worship what you do not know. But we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. This is an incredibly powerful, honest, strong statement from Jesus. He is telling her what? Your worship, Samaritans, on Mount Gerizim, it's what? It's wrong. The way that you are worshiping is wrong. And the reason is, is it's grounded not in the truth. You see, they embraced the five books of Moses, but they rejected the prophets. And then they brought other idol worship in with that. And so they're not worshiping in truth. And so Jesus says, listen, your worship is not right. And so we honestly, tenderly, again, I think not harshly, says to her, listen, you're worshiping in a way that's not right because you don't understand. And here's the reality for us. It's so important, church. The truth is the substance for all genuine worship. We cannot worship Christ unless we know the biblical truth about who Christ is. And this applies to our personal worship. This applies to our corporate worship. And so Jesus says, you worship what you do not know. Stating to her, listen, there are errors in your worship. And again, the Samaritans were worshiping in ignorance. And yet they thought it was the right way. And this happens all the time, everywhere. Where people think, okay, this is the right way. But because it's not grounded in biblical truth, it's not authentic worship. And then Jesus says, for the Jewish way of worship was right, for it been, had been commanded by Yahweh as pleasing to him. The Jews affirmed Moses. They affirmed the patriarchs. They affirmed the prophets and David. And they worshipped what they knew, the law and the sacrifices. And one can only worship when we truly know what is true. And that is why it is incredibly important that we are biblically correct and we place an emphasis on that for we cannot worship Him if we do not know the truth. So hear this. Worship becomes a head issue. It becomes a knowing issue. And Jesus in a moment is going to say it's also a heart issue. It's going to be both of those reality. The Samaritan's worship was not pure, in regard to it being mixed with other ideas and scriptures. And if there's going to be a Christ-focused worship in our lives and in the church, then it can never be mindless, and it cannot be based in ignorance of what is true. And so worship is to become in our lives, and again, let's define this, worship is not singing. That is one aspect. Worship is every bit of our life. It's, it's how a husband and wife deal with one another. Do they deal with one another in a way that honors what the Scripture says about things? Worship is about our parenting. Worship, worship is about our leisure and our work ethic. Yes, worship is about singing. Worship is also about what is the posture of my heart during the preaching? Am I leaning into the truth of God to know what God is communicating? And so this is to become a natural outflow of of our lives and if we do not care about what is true then we will never get to a place 
of living biblical worship. It is not possible. Because if this is neglected, then worship will be rare or worship will not happen. And so Jesus says the heart of the matter is this. If you're going to worship, then you've got to know the truth. So he says, you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. And this is why, church, at Life Point, an orderly exposition of the Scripture is to be primary and necessary so that all of us understand what the Scripture is teaching about God because when we know the biblical truth, then we know who He actually is and the worship of all of our lives is right. And I know this to be true in my own life. The more I learn of Him in the Word, the more I experience more of who He is and what He does, and I come to know Him in a deeper way. The danger of not knowing the truth and trying to worship without knowing the truth is this, is that eventually a church, a denomination, a person, a family, whatever the case may be, they will drift always into idolatry. And that's what marked the Samaritans' worship. So worship becomes for us an authentic expression to God, the God we know and understand as He is revealed in the Scripture. Let's look at the next important principle. Six, the heart of the matter is we worship in spirit and truth. And boy, this is the critical one. Look at 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is here, Jesus says. And look what he says, not false worshipers, when true worshipers worship the Father, how? Two ways, in spirit and truth. We've dealt with truth a little bit already, and so Jesus just takes it a little bit deeper. We worship in spirit and truth, and he says this, For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Listen, church, he's not saying do whatever you want to do. He's defining for us what worship looks like. It is connected with spirit and truth. God's looking for those who want to connect in spirit and truth. He's not looking for those who want to make up new things. He's not looking for that, and he's not going to find people, and he's not going to pour out his blessing on those who just want to do their own thing. He wants to pour out His blessing, and He will pour out His blessing when He finds people who on the inside, they are deeply connected to Christ, and they love the truth of the sacred Scripture. They want to know the God of the Bible, not the God of the culture, not the God of some other um, false idea and teaching that worship becomes very central of Inside, connected to the glory of God, loving God, pouring out our heart, bowing before Him, leaning in and connected to the truth. And so Jesus says, listen, the hour is coming and it's actually here. And the reason is, is that He was and is the greater temple. In Matthew 12, verse 6, Jesus says, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And He's proclaiming that. Hebrews 8, 8, 13 speaks about that. John chapter 2, verse 18 through 23, Jesus speaks about his body as the greater temple. 
So let me just give us four brief things about what, is it, what does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? What, it, what does that mean for us? So the first one is simply this. Worship in spirit is an inside response in our heart to the glory of God. Worship of Christ begins in what we know scripturally to be true, and it must come from a heart of sincerity that deeply flows at a heart of, of loving the truth and loving God and motivated to praise God by the way we live based on who He is and what He has done. Worship is not to be rote and mechanical, but it is to be full of heart. And so we just looked a while ago, worship is to be a head issue. Now Jesus says worship is to be a heart issue. The nature of our worship is to adore God in our spirit, always based, grounded in the revealed truth of Scripture. So the first principle of worshiping in spirit and truth means this is an inside response from our heart to the glory of God. Secondly, similar to it, that worship in spirit and truth means that we worship Him in connection, in communion with Him. I read this a few weeks ago. Listen to this. Tim Fisher wrote this. He said, public worship is only the manifestation of private worship. The reason our public services are dead is that our private devotional life is dead. The quick fix of injecting more upbeat music into our services may seem to solve the problem, but we have ignored the disease that will destroy us unless we seek God's cure. Our church congregations fail to sing with conviction because the song isn't in their hearts before they even come to the service. And so if there's not a connection of our lives during the week, we will come in here and we will miss out on bringing something in a corporate setting when we do come together to worship Him. And so this is an inside response that is connecting and communing with God. And thirdly, worshiping in spirit and truth, worship is one of the great works and ministries of the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit awakens in us a biblical understanding of the glory of God's triune nature. The Holy Spirit moves in us to celebrate and enjoy the great life that we have been given in our salvation in Jesus. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to see what we have in Jesus and to see the glory of Jesus. The Holy Spirit moves in us in our corporate gatherings as a church to lead us to connect with God as we were among the people of God honoring him jesus we read last week in john 16 14 he the spirit will glorify me for he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you so worship in spirit and truth is an inside response a bowing a recognizing the glory of god and it's connecting communing with god and it is a great work of the holy spirit And lastly, worship in spirit and truth means that we never leave the truth out of the equation. Truth cannot be omitted. See, biblical worship means that in every case, we are aiming at conforming our lives and singing and preaching and praying and community and greeting and and kids ministry and student ministry Every single thing that we do 
is aimed at conforming to the revelation of God in Scripture. Jesus twice here says this, in spirit and truth, in spirit and truth. We are not to sing. We are not to preach heresy or half-truths, not even three-quarter truths. We are to sing and preach and pray what is biblical. So worship can never be chopped down into in, a place where it's, it's only grounded in if we're motivated and we feel good about something. The worship, the understanding of worship is, is that worship is connected to the truth. Now, I think one of the great crises in the church is where people, and again, I'm not just talking about music, I'm just talking about life, where people want worship um, that will naturally lead to just emotions. Now, I want to say something about this. I'm for emotion. I am absolutely for emotion. I want something that moves me. I hope you do as well. I want to be moved by God emotionally. But there's, there's something really important that we see here. You can't have, we're not to have one without the other. So there's an inward connection of our spirit connected with God that is naturally going to produce what? Emotions and feelings and connection and intimacy and courage at times and, and deep passion. Those are all things as we worship Him in our life that is emotional. And so it involves our head and it involves our heart. And I believe true worship awakens the mind. I believe it moves the heart. I believe it stirs our affections. And I believe it moves every aspect of our lives to long for more of Him. And if our knowledge or feelings are awakened, hear this. If our knowledge or our feelings are awakened by what is false, then it is not worship. Jesus said authentic worship is grounded in spirit and truth. So yes, let's sing. Let's sit under the preaching of God's word and let's be moved in mind and heart and spirit. And let's have great affection for the beauty and the glory of God's presence in our midst. Listen to what John Piper wrote about this perspective. Truth without emotion produces a dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers of God. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates a shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Seventh principle, the heart of the matter, and this one's critical, the heart of the Father and His seeking nature are looking for people who worship in spirit and truth. So Jesus states two specific reasons why you and I should be motivated to worship in spirit and truth. 
And one is this, the Father seeks and desires it. This is what the Father seeks and desires. The old way was ordained by the Father, and the new way was ordained by the Father, and it would be far better, and it would allow us to have greater intimacy with God. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25 just speaks about just this beauty of the new way that has come for us to worship. The old forms prepared the way for what was new that would come, that would be ushered in through Christ. So, so the heart of the matter is this, is we've got to know this, that the Father is seeking worshipers whose heart wants to commune with them, whose spirit wants to commune with them, and who love deep, strong, solid doctrine. And again, I'll just say this. We are not, we cannot preach and sing songs, preach sermons, pray prayers that are not grounded in biblical truth. For if that is the case, then we have gathered not in a heart of worship. Because truth must guide that, and it must be our passion, and the Father seeks that. So, the heart of the matter is the Father seeks worship of this, and the reason is, is because God is spirit. Now, Jesus of the Trinity is the only one who took on flesh and bone, um, and blood, and, and he was here, he, he had skin, um, but the Father and the Spirit are spirit. There's some unique things that the book of Acts speak about the Father. This is Acts seven forty eight. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what? is the place of my rest. Did not my hand make all of these things? Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples. He's not, he's not, confound, he's not confined to a location. He's the God who reigns. Nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, Paul writes. Since he, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We do not go to a building somewhere and stare at statues for worship. But we are alive on the inside and we can draw near to the one who is eternal and uses the earth as his footstool. And every bit of our faith is to be grounded in a life and a love for Christ, for his fullness is the very essence of real life. And that's why we've got to know Jesus as revealed in the Scripture. And so our worship is to be spiritual in practice by being grounded in spirit and truth. And in this manner, when we worship Him in spirit and truth, our worship becomes pure spiritual worship. And it's the only kind. Hear this. Don't miss this. It is the only kind that the Father seeks and blesses. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. That's it. And that's why this must become the deep passion of our hearts. Here's the last thing. 
So she brings up the subject matter of worship, wondering about it. Jesus brings real specific clarification. I think she affirms what Jesus has said. And here's the last heart of the matter, and it's the revelation of Jesus. Look at 25 and 26. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. He's going to make it really, really clear. We're going to know exactly when he shows up. We're going to exactly know what it is. And this is incredibly powerful. This is the first time in the Gospel of John. And she probably is the very first one outside of the disciples publicly where this happens. And he said to her, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. The one who's been speaking to you today at this well, I am the one who makes everything clear. And so Jesus just reveals himself to her. And if you read through the lines a little bit, you can hear what he's saying. She's wondering a bit if he is a prophet, and um, but she'd listen to him, but she would definitely listen to the Messiah if he were to come along. When he comes, he's going to make it incredibly clear. And Jesus says, well, I've just solved the issue for you. I'm the Messiah. And everything I've been telling you about living water, about living worship, is absolutely true. And I tell you, you look at the progress that has taken place in her heart through this encounter, and it's amazing. She sees Jesus as a Jew in verse 9. She calls Jesus sir in verse 11. She wonders if he's greater than Jacob in verse 12. She wonders if he's a prophet in verse 19. She speaks of the Messiah in 25, and in 29, she comes to the place where she knows this is the Messiah. He's here. And I tell you, for us in evangelism encounters, things don't always move this fast. Um, sometimes it takes weeks, sometimes it takes months or years. But on this afternoon, Jesus won her heart and he changed her life. And I believe she believed based on 428 and 439 through 41. And right as Jesus says, I'm the Messiah, the disciples arrive with pizza. And they're wondering, what in the world's been going on? Here he is talking with a woman in public, and that's where we're going to pick up next week. Let's pray.